0: Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Die song. Strange concept. I've been thinking about it for weeks, working on this episode and the idea that the things that rumble through our minds um, the tunes that come into our, our heads uh, the vibes the undertone of all of our thoughts you know, they can have a positive or a negative vibe to them and we all constantly sing songs Again, positive or negative. Though sometimes it feels like these songs, these rhythms, these ways of thinking attack us or envelop us, um, assist us, or draw us to the negative or the positive. This episode is going to be called Die Songs. And when I was talking to my son the other day our 11-year-old, I have a 4-year-old as well, Charlie, and, you know, there's Jack. All the songs I sing in my mind when I'm with Charlie are positive. They're not die songs. But as Jack gets older, there are these, this, these songs, the, the, these rhythms, this feeling to my thoughts with him where it's like he's drifting away. There's death and life. And it's going to happen with Charlie too where it's like, oh, I've lost that version of him. And here comes the new version. I have to say goodbye to that previous version. Um, and that hasn't happened so much with Charlie yet. It's just been, it's wonderful with a four-year-old. He, it, our connection is getting stronger and stronger. Those songs, the, the vibration of our relationship is, is so strong and, and wonderful. But with... My older son Jack, there's, there's die songs. There's a feeling that he's going away. I, I knock on his door before I come in. You know, I ask him. I, I have to set things up to spend time with him. I have to be careful and tiptoe around certain subjects so as not to tip him off as to what I'm actually getting at. And um, he came up to me the other day, and, and that's the, uh, the story I want to tell before this. I've recorded this after what you're about to hear, but I wanted to add that in. Um, yeah, Die Songs. The episode that you're going to hear after what, what I'm about to punch in here is about Die Songs. It's about a schizophrenic hearing voices in his mind and feeling rhythms and and feeling like he's being told to go in a certain direction. And what they're telling him is that people need to die in order for life to continue, and I guess I'm just trying to adopt that in some way. I understand die songs to the point where it is um, with my children, or in relationships I've been in, or with people I've I've known that have passed away, where the rhythm of your relationship turns into a die song, turns into a death, turns into a petering out. And I worry, because uh, I'm a big believer in, in an afterlife, and and I know it does exist, that if you end up in a, in a die song with somebody, where it just kind of falls away, you will never see them again. And you, you have to keep that song strong. And uh, what I'm about to talk about is, is me trying to keep the song strong with my son. Then we'll get into the episode. Thank you. Hello, out there. Hey, listen, before we get started, uh, this is the monthly monster, obviously. uh, 13th floor content. It's it's a little embarrassing dropping these at the first of the month, the end of the month, um, because what people do when it comes to Patreon is that, you know, they have this promised content. And if they're, you know fucking slacking or whatever they will procrastinate and then they'll they'll drop it right at the end of the month and i've always kind of been one of these guys uh with you guys and it's embarrassing it really is um so this time around you know i've I've been doing a few months on my own and i said you know i I gotta get this out with like a week left so that they know you know i'm on top of the shit And I'm not just fucking shoving shit out the door. Just as a, hey, high five. Uh, You're about to pay me again. Uh, Can you continue paying me, please? I I hate that. I hate that mindset. I've done it. Um, And right now it's happening again. But I just kind of want to explain to you what's been happening here. So, my son comes up to me a couple of days ago, and I've done this episode. And uh, my older son, he's 11 years old now. Uh, can we talk about something else, kid? <sighs> he comes up to me, and he goes, hey, you like basketball? He's never fucking talked to me about sports. It's always been video games, you know, so I just kind of work with what, what he wants to do. Didn't put him in hockey, something I would have loved to be, you know, like involved in when I was a kid and all that. It takes a little bit of money. Um, I, didn't, I didn't make the cut there, and I played floor hockey, and I had a good time doing it. But, like, I thought to myself, if he ever comes to me and says he wants to do something, we're going to do it, no matter what. I don't give a fuck if I have to give up every weekend all through the winter and, you know, drive places and stay in hotels. I mean, that will be a lot of fun. But he never wanted that. And I and I pushed him, and he didn't want it, whatever. So sports are kind of out. But then the other day, like I said, like a couple of days ago, he goes, hey... You ever play basketball? Do you know anything about basketball? And here's another thing. At the beginning of uh, his school year, he asked me to get him some shoes. Some really nice shoes. I think they're called... Uh, fuck. They're the Black Air Force Ones. Uh, low tops. And they cost like 150 bucks here in Canada. So I got them for him. Because I thought... like, To me explaining it, it was like a meme. It was like a funny thing. And his friends would laugh. And it was worth it for me, so I got, I, we get him those. And, uh, I guess since he has those, people are suddenly, like, thinking that he's involved with basketball. So, at recess time and stuff, they're inviting him in. Where normally, sadly, he, he sits with his, his friends who they talk about video games with, and they kind of are a little outside of everything. And, and that was okay with me, too. I mean, as long as you got one friend in this world... You're gonna be okay as long as you're not just sitting there by yourself i dropped my son off for the last few years and he had his one friend who'd be sitting at a park bench like a picnic table waiting for him and then i would say hey why don't you bring him home for lunch with you so he doesn't have to sit there the whole time anyways figuring it out right just trying to navigate uh with without a strong touch uh to make his life in school easy for him but suddenly because he's got these shoes the kids are calling him in a place of basketball and he's tall, you know. I'm tall. Um, my girl's fairly tall for a girl. And he's gonna be a big kid. He's probably gonna be six four. He he could be bigger, you know. He's um right now he's five five and he's in grade six. So they call him in to start playing, and uh he's not good. He doesn't know how to dribble, he doesn't know how to shoot. So he says, hey, dad, did you play basketball? I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah, I play basketball. And he's like, uh, uh, did you play sports? And I was like, yeah, that's all I did. I mean, I'll, I always had a glove. I always had a basketball. I always had a baseball, um, you know, we didn't have as many video games available to us and computers in our fucking bedrooms like he has. Um, I was always on my bike. I was always out and I was pretty good at sports. So, hey, can you teach me how to play basketball? So for the last two days, I just shut her down. I just fucking took him into school on Thursday, and then today's a day off uh, for them, and just playing basketball, teaching them, teaching them. And he's he's coming up on me, and he doesn't know how to shoot, so I'm I'm drilling him, I'm doing shots, and shots, trying to keep it fun for him too. And um, man, just horrendous. But we've gotten to a point where where he's he's fairly good, showing how to dribble, protect the ball. Um, But then there came a point where, you know, he's coming up on me and I'm playing defense on him. I'm Like, hey, listen, and I'm pushing him around. He's like, you're not supposed to touch me. I'm like, that's on a shot. And because I live out in the middle of nowhere, a lot of these kids, you know, they might have the shoes. They they might be able to shoot a basketball because they have once in a while. But like where I came from, we play all the time. We constantly playing basketball, jumping off the walls, to dunk and, you know, three point competitions, all that shit. So I'm like, you could be a little bit aggressive, man. You, you got to be a little bit aggressive on defense, like on offense too. You, you can't smack a guy's hands around when he's taking the shot. But when you're trying to protect that ball, all bets are off. I mean, by the 90s rules. And you can give him a little shove, a little push here, a little push there. And uh, now I got him, you know, I got him, I got him bumping and, and, and bouncing off and, and doing fadeaways and all that shit and uh tremendous it's uh kind of been what i've been doing for the last couple of days otherwise this would have been out a couple of days ago so i just want to share a little bit of my life there uh and it sounds like an excuse but it's really what i've uh been focusing on it's so important it's so important to to drop everything once in a while and uh focus in on something holy completely because for him you know i could show him a video I can go in and do a couple of fucking half-ass shots. I've been drilling this kid. Like, just fucking, yeah. And and when he goes back in on Monday, I hope he... It's not about hitting the shot. It's about protecting that ball, uh, separating, getting yourself a shot, and showing everybody that, you know, you won't take any shit. I said, hey, are they pushing you around there? He's like, yeah, I get, you know. I'm like, hey, does anybody ask you to pass the ball? He's like, oh, constantly. I'm like, don't pass them the fucking ball unless they're open. All right? If you're open, you 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 break away and you take that shot, right? Um, and that ball is always yours. You gotta be thinking, or when you shoot, you gotta think in your mind. I got it, I got it. You might miss, but you gotta think. I got it, I got it. And um, it's been a really enjoyable situation for me to teach my son. I realized through it, I was like, ah, it's just sports, but actually, what it's about is <sighs> a lot of it is interacting with human beings, and, and a lot of it is war. Sports are war. Sports are like chess. Sports are war. Football is very much like chess. Your guy's set in a certain way. My guy's set in a certain way. And we develop a play. And they develop a play to go up against it. And we see who wins. And in basketball, which is what he's been drawn into because of his height and his shoes now, it's like, you can't be nice in there, man. You can't be nice in there. It's about winning. It's it's No, it's about competition. And it's about not getting pushed around. And not getting pushed around has a lot to do with life, doesn't it? And I'm very thankful for it. And I'm thankful for the couple of days I've had. And, um, you know, I'm thankful for your patience on this. So it's coming up now. Uh, It's not really a story about bullying or anything that has to connect to that. Although I'm sure both of the guys that I talk about here have been bullied tremendously at some point in time. Uh, But it's the story of Herbert Mullen. And uh, he was a serial killer who was operating in California, Santa Cruz area near San Francisco. Around the same time, excuse me, that uh, Ed Kemper was active. And I'm sure you've heard the story before, the earthquake killer. But I'm going to tell it a little bit different. I'm going to involve uh, Ed Kemper in it a little bit too. And, and you'll hear f- from him at the end. And we speak about him throughout. I hope that you know the Ed Kemper story. I've told it. I'm sure you've seen Mindhunter. I'm not going to uh, put you through an explanation on uh, as to who Ed Kemper was, but I am going to focus on the killer that was active at the same time as him and who, we, who Kemper spent time with, and Herbert Mullen, who a lot of people have not focused on, at least in my experience. I hope you enjoy. Teamwork is something I failed to mention in my convoluted, way-too-long intro there. Teamwork is obvious. It's something that I would teach my son as well, but uh, he already has that in him. There is a difference between being a team player and just being a pushover, though. And that's not something I needed to focus on with my son because he, he inherently is a... So I'm focused on trying to teach him to be an individual, to try to make the right decisions on any given situation, um, that, is, that is correct, rather than just acquiesce to somebody else who is bullying and pushing and who is, uh, you know, a stronger presence. Pick your spots. Do it when it's right. Anyways, speaking of teamwork, I'm about to get into a couple of guys who were teaming up on a place called Santa Cruz and when it came to serial killing, though they didn't know it. The greater Santa Cruz region of California experienced an influx of serial murder between 1972 and 73, when the terrifying co-ed killer, the giant Edmund Kemper, was joined by a mentally ill maniac, a munchkin to Big Ed, named Herbert Mullen, in decorating the area with yellow police tape. The bodies just kept turning up, and when Ed finally called it a career... Refreshed after tossing his mother's limp, decapitated corpse into her closet like a wet towel before calling himself in, he found that he hadn't been alone out there. After all, Herbie, his eventual neighboring cellmate, had been out there too, exercising his own demons. Kemper, standing at six feet nine inches, was a foot taller than Herbert Mullins at five nine. Old Herbie as Kemper took to calling him, was only a year-ed senior, at 27, when he'd been brought in from the reign of terror we'll weather together momentarily. Kemper tops just about anyone's list of likable serial killers. He's quite charming, intelligent, thoughtful, entertaining. That is, if you can manage to forget he murdered girls and used their heads to fillet himself with. Herbert Mullen, on the other hand, was an annoying little freak that pissed off everyone he came into contact with. And there's a misconception that he managed to piss Ed off, too. But that's false. Once Mother was dead, Ed wasn't angry with the world anymore. Annoyed by it, amused by it, sure. And Herbie managed to do a little of both. Die songs. Herbie would hear them, would write them, would sing them. And when Kemper saw all of the trouble his fellow serial was causing within their cell block, Big Ed quietly began imposing his will. Herbie became a test subject for Kemper, a bit of amusement, another head to play with, so to speak. Though in order for us to fully enjoy that story, we need first to know what Ed was working with. Welcome to Dark Topic, I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime happening. Die songs. Herbert Mullen grew up in 1950s California and spent much of his early life in San Francisco where he became aware early on that his birthday, April the 18th, was shared by the great earthquake of 1906 that had devastated his city. Destiny was what Mullen found himself mulling over quite a lot. Most of us have a sense that we're destined for something, and that's likely just death, whispering us ever closer over time, but it sure is nice to think it's greatness. It keeps us moving along, like a donkey to a dangling carrot. Herbert Mullen didn't have to tell himself he was special. The handsome young man had a lot going for him. He was popular with the girls and the boys. In fact, Herb was voted most likely to succeed in his graduating year, which seems crazy now, but goes to show that then, back in 63, Herbie had it going on. He was the all-American kid with the all-American looks, which back then was being white, having maybe dark hair, a bright smile. He was of average height, average family, except his father, who was a World War II hero, which in white picket fence, nuclear family neighborhoods like the one Mullen grew up in, was about average too, for the time. Pleasantville, but all that was about to change. His best friend dies in a car accident following graduation, and Herbert is extremely shaken up by the tragedy. His high school sweetheart breaks up with him when she begins suspecting he's homosexual. There's a shrine in his room to his dead best friend. His mind fractures after this, and something begins whispering from the cracks in his psyche. It's schizophrenia, and he needs help, badly. But the voices assure him he's chosen. It's not a sickness. It's his destiny. So Herbert Mullen heads out into the world, a world that seems to be fading as the 60s beam bright, then wear out the colors of the 70s so ugly as a result. He rides the wave, coming out on the other side with long hair, a little mustache, artsy clothes, a tattoo on his stomach that reads, quote, legalize acid. Oh boy. Herbie's all over the map by the time America says goodnight. To Vietnam, and when the last of the wild-eyed soldiers return home spit on, Mullen has a revelation that will ruin his life and that of many others. The blood sacrifice of the United States has dried up. By 1972, Herbert Mullen had been in and out of psych hospitals multiple times and is a diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic. In hospital, Herbert writes letters to strangers, sharing what he's learned from the voices the Die songs. He signs off as, quote, a human sacrifice. Herbert Mullen. The stays in hospitals are short as he seems able to recover from episodes with medication. Medication he replaces with LSD and weed once back on the streets. He doesn't want to dull those voices, he wants to amplify them. Imagine telling Noah. That he needed to take a capsule Made to dull his connection to God Or Jesus You know what would Jesus do Indeed If offered medication To dull his connection With God Every morning at his apartment Neighbors watch as Herbert takes his watering can And soaks the welcome mat Outside his door And I don't know what the fucking tell you about that It's just a little nutty right His family fears him And for him They try to help, but it's hard. Over time and after multiple asylum stints, things have gotten old and eventually nasty as the system and society grows bored of trying to fix him. Having Herbert around is a lot. He never shuts up about his harebrained theories on good and evil, about politics, religion, his own great destiny. Herb's fucking nuts, all right? He asks his sister to have sex, then her husband, at a family dinner. At one point, he takes a break from the absurd and crude to begin mimicking the exact movements of his brother-in-law, and that's annoying at first, but soon it's spooky when Herbert fails to stop. He's in a trance and likely suffering an episode of echopraxia, a known feature of schizophrenia where the afflicted involuntarily copies the mannerisms of another. He's near constantly on LSD, consuming thousands of hits in his time. The earthquake aspect to this story may seem far out to us, but it's important to know that back in the late 60s, there was a huge concern that San Francisco would slip into the ocean if another massive quake hit. And rumblings were they were due. Millionaires bought up land that they estimated would become the new oceanside property following a quake, hoping to become billionaires. The hysteria is real. And for Herbert Mullen, he believes he's been chosen to thwart A disastrous earthquake. The Bible is full of such stories. Men and women, mostly men, let's be honest, receiving messages from God. They did not listen to the women. I mean, fuck women, right? Today, we deem these people who say they receive messages from God as mentally ill. But are they all? Is the Bible full of stories from schizophrenics? I'm not asking. Herbert Mullen is. Eyeballs dancing. Pupils black and deep. He's asking you and a court that insists on his hand to a Bible full of stories that today you'd only hear in a psych hospital. He's claiming his father to be a mass murderer who's telepathically telling him to join him in upholding the blood sacrifice necessary to avoid a cataclysmic earthquake. Okay. Okay, dad, I hear you. What do you hear, Herb? Oh, okay, fine, dad. Oh, yeah. Okay, I won't let you down, dad. What the fuck are you talking about, boy? He's burning his penis with cigarettes, muttering about rituals. It's a lot. And when everyone finally tires of Herbert, he finds himself alone, and with no choice but to listen to the Die songs. This is how he understands the intrusive thoughts, the Die songs, drifting through his mind, seeming to come from nowhere and everywhere. The drugs didn't help. The schizophrenia sure didn't either. But in the end, it was Herbert Mullen that put it all together, the man himself. He believed he was destined for greatness, and all this other shit didn't help. He believed he was destined like his idols in Da Vinci and Einstein. Da Vinci dissected bodies for his art. Did you know that, Mother? Of course you know. You gave me the book. i That's where I read it in. Are you trying to tell me something, Mother? She isn't. It's difficult loving someone who's losing their mind. It's as if Herbert's mental illness is consuming the good stuff and replacing it with poison. By the time he's 25, the once promising young man is unrecognizable, and all he speaks about are his die songs, reverberating from the earth and resonating in his mind. It's all becoming clear. Albert Einstein's death date of April the 18th that matched Herbert's birthday and the 1906 earthquake's date, didn't help with Herb's delusions of grandeur. He's seen patterns everywhere, signs, and they all point to Herbert Mullen being selected for duty, chosen to do what must be done, blood sacrifice. You wouldn't understand, couldn't. He'll handle it. It's all in his head, he's got it, and it's meant for him alone. The real problem, though, begins when he starts handling what he hears in the minds of others. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan. But the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. (laughs) Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, There's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences, They have the speech recognition feature built in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started for a very limited time. Dark topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off on limited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. All right, everybody, My Life in a Book. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com. We'll send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions you wish to ask. And then she can either type her response or use their voice to text feature. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories for eternity. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom may have given you a lifetime of stories, and this is your chance to give her a way to share them. I'm looking forward to using it with my lady and uh, having her do it for my kids. I think it would be a cool thing for them to have something quite different, something to hang on to. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code DARKTOPIC at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com. Use code DARKTOPIC for 10% off today. October, 1972. A Friday, the 13th. Herbert Mullen is driving a car, and so is Big Ed Kemper, both at the same time, in the same place, both with murder on their minds. While Ed cruises for co-eds, and I've never thought the co-ed killer was a good nickname for Ed until I realized that his name is in the actual fucking title, Ed is cruising for co-eds. Herbert, he's more of a free spirit. Heading out into the Santa Cruz Mountains in his 58 Chevy wagon, he ends up picking up a hitchhiker, a homeless man, who goes by the name Whitey. This is 55-year-old Lawrence White, and as they drive, Herbert listens closely, not to the words from Whitey's mouth, but to the words being transmitted telepathically. "Quote, throw me over the boat, kill me so others can be saved." End quote. He didn't actually say that, so I don't know why I quoted it. But that's what Herbert says he heard from Whitey through his mind. He also says that Whitey resembles the character Noah from the Bible, and is perhaps some reincarnation of Noah living a life of poverty and waiting to be once again put to use in this time frame herbert pulls over they're out in the middle of a fucking it's like a desert with shrubs Uh, there's mountains in the back it's a very desolate area he claims that there's engine trouble whitey knows a thing or two about cars so he offers to assist as he's lifting the hood herbert is lifting a baseball bat from the back seat And as Whitey brings his head up from a seemingly fine engine, his consciousness shuts off. Herbert beats the man to death with the bat, then tosses him into some scrub, soul-soaring as he drives into the darkening mountains, knowing that he's finally, like Whitey, served a purpose. He's satisfied, as is the earth and its bloodlust, for the moment. But now it's on. He's turned the tap and blood must keep flowing so 11 days later he picks up another hitchhiker 24 year old student Mary Guillefoyle unknowingly he's snatching one from Kemper's plate listening closely to his father's voice Herbert stabs Mary in the heart while they drive then pulls over to finish her off in a desolate mountain area he cuts the body open and begins draping her organs over bushes so he can closely analyze them in the sunlight There's a problem with pollution, his father whispers in his mind. You'll see the poison in the tissue there, son. But all Herbert sees is a bloody mess. And from what he can tell, the perfectly healthy insides of a now brutally murdered young woman. She was so nice to him, too. Herbert decides to go ask God about all this. He's suddenly unsure. So he dumps the body, cleans up, and heads to church. November 2nd of 1972, Herbert walks into St. Mary's Catholic Church and asks for confession. Father Henry Tome, a surviving member of the French Resistance in World War II, had dedicated his life to God following an already incredible life of service against evil. In the confessional booth, he speaks and listens to the disturbed young man and is taken by surprise when Herbert— Hearing only that the priest wishes to be sacrificed in his mind, he exits the booth and joins Father Tomei, whose screams are heard by those in silent prayer in the pews. He is beaten and stabbed to death by a small, thin man wearing all black who flees the scene calmly by witness accounts. In my mind, Herbert Mullen exits the church and is beaten by the wind for what he has done. The trees sway like grieving angels. The dirt kicks up to fly in the face of this misguided Cretan, And perhaps before he reaches his station wagon, a flyer hits him in the face with one of Ed Kemper's missing murder victims smiling upon it. And forgive me, this is madness. I'm just trying to fit in. In January of 73, Mullen is rejected by the Marines because of his mental health history. The plan had been to continue his blood sacrifices legally. Oh well. He tried. Clearly there was some guilt by this point, but not enough to keep the killer from committing his most heinous crimes, where vengeance and personal vendetta began to bleed in, raising the question for the first time, if this is all mental illness, or if maybe Herbie has found a hobby. Kemper sure thought so, and he would point to these killings coming up here, when later breaking Herbie down. You're nothing special, Herbie. January, 1973. He'd been living with his parents through the holidays, but the spirit of the season had worn off. Everyone had had enough Herbert. The killer is living in a shitty apartment, surrounded by junkies and wackos who'd respond to Herbert's rantings with ravings. He'd water his doormat. They'd piss on theirs. Nothing special, Herbie. And that's about the time he got to thinking how'd he end up here? And how could he fix it? It all had started with the drugs, as he recalled. Marijuana. After his buddy Dean had died after high school, his best friend Dean, what was his last name? Richardson. Dean Richardson. Yeah. After that, there'd been drugs. And then die songs. And who had given him the drugs? Herbert tracks down James a guy he remembered giving him weed on a beach shortly after Dean's car accident. James lives out in a remote area where some cabins exist in a thrown-together commune-style community. When Herbert finally finds what he believes to be the right cabin, he knocks and is greeted by Kathy Francis, a young woman with a cigarette, tending to her two young boys, nine-year-old David and four-year-old Damon, who tugs at his mother's skirt, smiling at Herbert. Damon. How you spell that? D-A-E-M-O-M. Hmm. Hello, Damon. Apparently James has moved to another cabin. That's what Kathy tells him. Okie dokie, Smokey. Is there a Mr. Kathy? A Mr. David? A Mr. Damon? There is, whatever the fuck that means. He's not home. I think you mean my husband? Herbert won't learn until later that the man of the cabin is a known drug dealer, big time. He's out doing his thing at the moment, actually. And as a result, what will end up happening here will be blamed on gangland activities. Kathy points Herbert in the direction of his target, James, and Herbert reluctantly goes, even though something is telling him, to stay. He finds James, and James is at the door to his cabin, claiming he doesn't know what Herbert's talking about, but it's clear James may not be part of some conspiracy to ruin Herbert's life but he certainly has now been chosen for blood sacrifice. It all adds up. This is a perfect spot out here for slaying. He shoots James with a pistol and James doesn't die. He spins and goes stubbling into the cabin yelling for his wife Joan. Nice. Two for one. Thanks James. Herbert finishes the man off and then finds Joan in the bathroom hiding and executes her as well. Then, he thinks, Kathy and the kids know I came here. Or, he thinks, that little family back there would be a major sacrifice and likely keep the good people of California safe for a good while. And this is Kemper speaking. In my mind, Kemper says, give me a break. You really think this fucking asshole goes back to kill that young woman and her two boys? Your sons are the same age, Jack. You really think that this was to appease God? in herbie's mind and my answer ed is no i think he killed them for kicks i think he killed them to protect himself from capture he's crazy yeah but when you kill children children screaming for their mother whom you've just shot little boys not god not mental illness not ancient spirits are responsible herbert mullen is and let's cut the bullshit right ed Mm Mm-hmm But it's not over A month later Herbie is taking a hike In a Santa Cruz state park Maybe listening to die songs Through his headphones And that's possible Herbert was known to walk around With disconnected headphones Bopping to the beat of the universe Man He's taking a hike When he stumbles across Four young men Camping illegally They've been littering And Herbie no likey Littering Disrespecting the planet That's not cool man Killing children while they beg for the bullet to reverse from their mother's head, that's just business. That's just rolling with the beat of the die songs. But a chip bag and a beer bottle not disposed of properly? Not in his fucking watch. Herbert pretends to be a park ranger, demanding the mess be cleaned up. It's important to note he has caught the boys sleeping. They're in their large canvas tent when Herbert opens the flap and starts flapping his overactive gums. Hey, fuck off, man. You're not a park ranger, one of the kids says. He's dressed like a homeless pirate. Get the fuck out of here, man. Herbert asked the boys telepathically if they'd like to be blood sacrifice to prevent a cataclysmic earthquake from destroying the very ground they're desecrating. Deep down, boys, what are you worth anyways? All the boys see is a skinny, long-haired weirdo with long hair and a pervy mustache grinning at them eyes twitching like a Richter scale, delicately gleaning ethereal information from the dark yellow air of the tent. The answer is, yes, sir, please. What are we worth anyways? Herbert pulls his gun and fires on the boys. Brian Card, 19, Robert Spector, 18, David Ollaker, 18, and Mark dribblebees 15. Fish in a Barrel The boys won't be found for another week. They are found in the corners of the tent, as if they tried to make themselves small. The smell is so tremendous that the tent itself should just be a body bag, but they pull them out, one by one. Each had been finished with a shot to the head. The killer is thought to be on the loose. But by then, it's all over. February the 13th, 1973. The 13th and final victim. Is stuffed into the belly of San Francisco to quiet the rumblings. Herbert is on his way to deliver some firewood to his parents in his Chevy station wagon. He's a good boy, just doing his best out here, when the voice of his father overwhelms his mind quote, Don't you dare deliver a stick of wood unless you've killed somebody. Okie dokie! Herbert has a rifle in the back seat he stole from the four young men he'd murdered and left putrefying. So when he sees an old man in his garden, 72-year-old retired prize fighter and fishmonger, Fred Perez, Herbert pulls over, sets himself up for a clean shot on the hood of the Chevy, and fires a deadly round through the heart of the beloved citizen here in Santa Cruz. A neighbor witnesses this and takes down the plate number. Not long afterwards, Herbert Mullen is pulled over and arrested without incident, and so ends the blood sacrifice of 7273 in California. It's someone else's burden now. There are 13 victims in all, and the craziest part of the whole thing is that not long after Herbert Mullen, the so-called earthquake killer, is brought in, there is an earthquake, a 5.8 magnitude quake. It doesn't snap a piece off the face of California, but it does make Herbert feel justified. After all, there hadn't been one rumble since Herbie started his killing spree. A quote here from Herbert Mullen: "Quote, we human beings, through the history of the world, have protected our continents from cataclysmic earthquakes by murder. In other words, a minor natural disaster avoids a major natural disaster. People like to sing the die song, you know. People like to sing the die song." End quote. But he soon brought down to earth when Ed Kemper is locked up as his neighbor. It took a while to figure out all that we have covered here for investigators. The murders were quite random. But Herbert had kept a tally. He had newspaper clippings of each murder. And once these leads were looked at, it became obvious that Mullen was a serial killer. One thing that really muddied the waters for a while was that Ed Kemper had been out there killing too. So once Ed gave up, things became a lot more clear. Two serial killers at the same time, operating in the same space. You'd think they'd get along, once incredibly placed directly beside each other in a near all-day lockdown. But not really, no. Kemper gets some shit for his criticisms of Herbert Mullen. People feel like he bullied the smaller man, the mentally ill man, around. Herbie died last month, in late August of 2022, 75 years old, natural. Kemper at 73 isn't doing so hot himself, but I bet he's tickled a little in knowing Herbie never got to gloat. Anyways, yes, Kemper gave Herbie a hard time. But let's be honest and say he deserved it. Kemper deserved it too, a hard time. It's just that Big Ed knew he was guilty. He knew himself, that he was wrong. He knew he was a killer and deserved to be locked up. Herbie, on the other hand, continued to act as though he were chosen, and in God's eyes, was innocent. But Big Ed disagreed. You're nothing special, Herbie. In fact, you're just another run-of-the-mill pussy child killer. Remember that, Herbie? When you killed those kids? That wasn't God's work. That was you covering your tracks because they'd seen you asking about the other. What was his name? James? They saw you, Herbie. Their mother saw you. So you covered your tracks And killed those fucking kids, Herbie. That's not crazy, Herbie. That's not God in the belly of California. That's just little Herbie, worried the fun might end. How did it feel to shoot a little boy in the head, Herbie? First his mother, then his brother. How old was he? Nine? The youngest? Four? Shut up, Ed! Stop it, Ed! But he won't. Big Ed Kemper calmly breaks Herbie down, the giant, and his little test subject. When the Die songs rise defiantly from Herbie's cell, it drives every prisoner on the block mad. Except Kemper. Guards watch over the cameras. Crowd round at times to witness Big Ed put his skills, learned from his own time in psychiatric institutions, to work. All right, and here, you know, what to do. Should I read what he did or play Ed speaking straight to you here? This is a little, uh, disingenuous. Acting like I, uh. Don't know what I want to do here. I definitely want to play Ed. I'm going to go for this teammate aspect. I'm going to team up with Ed here. I'm going to let Ed explain it. Um, There is a pause in his speaking at one point, and Ed's making a gesture for sleep. He's putting his hands to his head. You'll hear a little pause there. Just know that's what he's doing. Herbie's sleeping when he says this. He's communicating by sign language with the inmate across from Herbie, his plan. Yes, it is definitely better if Ed tells it. Eyes cocked, doors locked, stay paranoid. Thank you for your high-level support here at the 13th floor. And I hope you enjoyed. And uh, this is one of my favorite, uh, Ed Kemper. It's not a diatribe, just him speaking. Um, I use a little rower in the mornings, and this fucking guy, I watched the whole thing I rode for like, you know, half an hour. I'll play you I'll play you the good snippet that he speaks on, uh, Mullen here. Anyways, okay, come on in, Ed. Big Ed, hey, oh, and beware, Ed's a little manipulative himself. Don't get too comfortable. Ed's smart. Herbie was too. Herbert could write down an accurate star map for any part of the world from any view at any time in history. You know, you could tell him from the one interview I saw from a former uh, cellmate, I guess, of his, I'm not sure if it was a cellmate, but somebody who spent time with him, he could ask him, he did ask him, hey, what did the stars look like? from the perspective of London 10 years ago and he drew a star map that showed exactly that I don't know if this guy's full of shit or not but he also Herbert could learn languages in weeks enough to creep out the Russians, Jews, Koreans he was in with he was no moron but Big Ed Kemper figured him out I feel okay, sorry, Ed go ahead
1: You know, uh, I knew Herbie, and uh, I don't call him Herbert Mullen. And, of course, I don't call myself Edmund Amo Kemper III, either. I never heard that in my life until I was locked up for murder, right? Um, But little Herbie was, when I met him in Redwood City Jail, okay, our first meeting was I bumped him out of the priority cell where they could look from the office and see through the steel door, the glass in the door, and see him physically, or they could watch the monitor and watch him. He got bumped next door. There was a shower in the priority cell. He never had to leave the cell. For him to shower from the other cell, he had to go out into the main area. They had to lock everybody in one of the, uh, uh, I guess you call them tanks. They moved 15 guys, 30 guys out of the tank into the activity area. They'd walk him around into their tank. He'd shower. He'd come back out all the way over there and all the way back. They're catcalling him. They're calling him names. They're yelling because he caused them great interruption in their day, right? He resented that. He got bumped out of the priority cell into a non-shower cell. I got the shower cell, right? So he wasn't too friendly at first. And I'd say, "Uh, excuse me, Mr. Mullen. I says, do you have a bar of soap? There's no soap over here. He took it all with him. He had no need for it, but he took it with him. And he'd say yes, and I'd say, well, can I use a bar of it? And he said, no. I'd say, well, I've got one of these little shits here. And what it is, he's a little wimpy guy that hates big guys because he always feels intimidated by them, right? And that's how we started out. So I started thinking about that, and I went back to my old relationships and therapy and group therapy and Tascadero and youth authority and stuff, and I'm saying, okay, well, we can deal with this. So I started, I said, well, I have to be kind to him. So I found out something he liked. He loved Planters peanuts, little bags of peanuts, shelled peanuts. And uh, so I bought twenty, thirty bags of them. I didn't care for them myself, and uh, I offered him some one day. And they were both on camera, twenty-four hours a day. So I said, "Herbie, would you like some peanuts?" And he said, "Yeah." I said, "Well, I got to him right down to the inner core there. Yeah, this little childhood thing comes out." I says, "Oh, here." And he was fascinated by this thought of, gee, he's just giving me some peanuts and I didn't do anything for him. Uh, I don't know him. I'm you know, not being nice to him. Why would he give me some peanuts? So he comes over to the bars. We can't even see each other. And I reach out with these peanuts on the side. And I see this little hand come out. And I thought of it almost as a little monkey paw. That's what it seemed like. So innocent, and this little, little hand comes out, starts to reach for the peanuts, and then, and then he hesitated. And then he pulls back. And I thought, oh, geez, he's defensive. He's thinking I'm going to grab his hand and rip his arm off or something. I'm this great big guy, right? So without saying anything, I just reached around and I laid him on the bars and then pulled my hand away. And he took them and he enjoyed them and all of that. And I'd say, later I'd say, gee, uh, did you eat all those peanuts? And he'd say, no, I still got some left. I said, well, i got plenty more. I said, go ahead and enjoy them. So what I did is I started giving him bags of peanuts. And he had this horrible habit. This guys back in the tank, and he and I are in these cells facing them through three bars, three sets of bars. And I can't see him, and he can't see me. I don't know where on the set of bars he is. The set of bars is maybe nine feet wide and, you know, eight or nine feet high. And when he would get to acting up, he'd sit there for hours writing and writing at this little desk. And uh, the other guys were ignoring him. So that night, they're watching Saturday Night Special, you know, with all this rock music playing and stuff, and they're enjoying it. And he'd get up and make this real loud speech about how bad television is for you, why you shouldn't watch it. All the things it'll do to you. And they're having fits. They're trying to throw things at him. They can't get at him. They're raging. They're mad because he's destroying the one thing they really enjoy. And he's just having a ball doing this. They'll sit for hours all day writing this two-hour speech exactly as long as it takes to watch that show so he'd also sit over there and sing these horrible songs he couldn't sing a lick at all and he's singing these horrible songs and one time I was in the car coming back to Redwood City and the cop got so upset at the singing he's doing in the back of the station wagon he turns around with his can of mace he says I've had it get out of the way Kemper and I'm saying hey wait a minute you're going to get me with that stuff but he's trying to mace the guy in the back of the car because he won't shut up and he's trying to get him to shut up and the guy just ignores him he had this way of really getting in people's nerves so he'd pull these little stunts, these horrible songs and the speeches and things, and i say, Arby, right, why do you do stuff like that? And he says, oh, I have a right to do what I want to do, too. And, yeah, okay, right. So I started this, with what they call just real basic behavior modification therapy. Okay, I'd had a little bit of psychology study. I'd worked in the psych testing area in a Atascadero. I knew some of these things. So I set up a very basic and very essential, just bare minimum behavior mod experiment, behavior modification, right? You reward them when they're good, you punish them when they're bad. And if you're absolutely accurate in when you do these things, quick punishment when they do bad and quick reward when they do good, supposedly this is supposed to attack you at a subliminal level, a subconscious level, and you don't have a lot of control over your reactions, that it would improve your behavior essentially. And then they have these great elaborate experiments like in Youth Authority when I went through, where they try these things. So, what I did is, when he was bad, I'd get a cup full of water, a styrofoam cup, and I'd reach around and I'd throw it on him. And it's embarrassing, and it also gets his papers wet, and, you know. So, we got in this cat and mouse game. When he was good, I'd give him peanuts, and I'd try to gas him when he was bad. It's called gassing. Throw so this water on him. And he'd duck all over the house. I couldn't figure out where he was at, so I kept missing him. So, what I did is, I waited one day until I knew he was asleep, or I suspected he was. And I called one of the guys over to the bars from the, uh, the, the, the place in the back, the tank. And I went like this. I went, and I says, and he reads it and he says, and I says, and I called him over to the bars and I said, hey, I said, I want to work something out where I can get Herbie with these cups of water and he can't figure out how I'm doing it. And I says, I just thought of a way. He says, what's that? And I said, I want you to set up a grid on the bars where you're at. Put a little piece of string or a little piece of plastic or a little, something he won't notice. Count over how many bars there are on his cell, on his cell front. and, And from the wall over that far on your set, set up boundaries. And then when I give you a signal that will be a hand signal, very casually walk over. Don't look at me, just casually walk over and drape yourself on the bars where he's at so I'll know. And if he's back away from the bars, go back that far and position yourself so I, it's a grid, it's a targeting grid. So he would do this, and Herbie would hear me turn the water on, or maybe I'd have some already set up. And I would reach through the bars, and I'd blast him, I'd got him every time. And he couldn't figure out how all of a sudden I got so accurate, you know? And it was without fail. I'd get him with that water, wham! and you know it's embarrassing and everybody's laughing back there and good shot at and all that stuff and then I'd ask him if he'd do something or hey can we do this or whatever you know? and he'd, he'd participate in something with me I'd give him peanuts when he's bad he gets blasted with water this went on for two or three weeks and he actually got away from the bad behavior when he said hey I want to sing and I says well hey guys in the back do you mind if he sings oh we don't want to hear that shit now. I said hey you want to hear it now or do you want to hear it tonight when you're watching the show yeah okay so Go ahead, Herbie, sing. What did, what did you sing? And he'd sing for 30, 40 seconds, and then get bored and say, gee, I want to do this anymore. You know, because the fun was gone out of it. But the point is, they got a handle on his behavior. And the cops are watching this. The deputies are on camera watching me. I mean, they're on the monitors watching every move I'm making, right? And they're fascinated. They're watching this thing going back and forth with me and Herbie. They're not involving themselves. They're just watching it. And after a while, one of them came in and said, Herbie is completely cooperative now. He's not messing around. Because I've been, as, as we're talking, these little frictions out between he and I, I'm showing him some insights into why people don't like him. I'm showing some insights into what his behavior is causing in them. And he had realized by that point that it was just, he's reacting. how people were reacting to him and it's just a self-perpetuating thing and it was the only way he could get out his negative feelings and i said well why don't you pose on the positive focus on the positive instead and the negative will go away i don't think anybody ever did that with him before because he responded real well to it and later when we were up here in the hole together and we weren't even supposed to be together they didn't want us together but we were up in the hole together uh i was the only guy he could talk to A lot of pain inside. He had a lot of anguish inside. He had a lot of hate inside. And it was addressed at people he didn't even know because he didn't dare do anything to the people he knew because he was aware of all of the structure around that and that that would be the end of his life. And so I started, the way I found out about these things is I would pose little uh, comments or questions aimed at him as we're sitting up there on the tier, on the concrete floor, sitting there against the wall, talking to one another. And I would say... How did you feel? You know, what did you when you bought that little Saturday Night Special 22, I says, uh, did you ever go out shooting with that? You know, just target shooting? He says, well, not much. And I say, well, try this on. You loaded it up. You went out. You set up bottles. You set up cans. You set them around in little areas right around close. and I practiced shooting them real fast. And he looks at me all shocked. He says, how do you know that? I said, because that's what I used to do. Those were people, those weren't cans and bottles, and you never told anybody. So he got all fascinated about how I was able to read his mind and stuff. I wasn't. I saw a kindred spirit there, somebody who was doing something very similar to what I was doing as a child. He went to mental institutions, and he went through this... These processes where these doctors told him what was wrong with him and these doctors treated things that they decided were wrong with him and he just sat back very passively and went through these treatments and they had almost no effect on him because he didn't dare say what was really going on in his head because they would cast him off somewhere he'd be totally separated from the human race and there were certain things he and certain things I enjoyed in being in the human race and being part of the human race we weren't willing to let go of so that was that, that little desperate hanging on so here comes these professionals saying, oh, this is wrong with you, little lad, and this is wrong with you, and we're going to fix this up, and okay, okay, I'm well, and yeah. goes out and buys a gun and starts killing people. And I talk about what happened when he killed those people. Oh, they fell dead. And I said, no, they did this, they did that. They gurgled, and they, some of them kept moving like you hadn't even shot them. And you shot them again. And he says, how did you notice you weren't there? And I says, I know. I never told anybody that. I know. I was there on my own trip. I know what happened. Herbie, don't give me that bullshit about earthquakes and don't give me that crap about uh, God was telling you. I said, you couldn't even be talking to me now as God was talking to you because of the pressure I'm putting on you right now, these little shocking insights into what you did. God would start talking to you right now if you were really that kind of ill because I grew up with people like that. Where? In a maximum security hospital for the criminally insane adults. I was 15 years old when I went there.